Не промахнись. Заткнись, Маргарит Кэтселис. Не промахнешься? Я хоть раз промахнулся. Смотри мне в глаза. Все обойдется. Смотри на меня. Вот так. Доктора! Доктора! Держись! Что ты опять отворил? Пока, Маркус! Hello and welcome to the good friends Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Frico. I'm Scott Norwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. Before we launch into the main topic, let's talk about some other things that are happening. There's other it, stuff happening. There, there is, indeed, on Saturday, which will be, you know, in the past when you hear this, of course, but it's Concrete Cow. It our, is. Our local role-playing games convention at Milton Keynes. Yes, yeah, at the, the old bathhouse in Wolverton, um, just next door to Tesco. Some people might wonder why it's called Concrete Cow. I don't know if we've ever explained this. Um, it's because it's in Milton Keynes. It's because it's in Milton Keynes, <laughs> yes. but, I mean... Yeah, people in England are going to get that. Are people further afield going to understand? I don't know. Yeah, I, I just always think of the concrete cows as being world famous. But if you are one of the the few, few people out there in the world who hasn't heard of the concrete cows in Milton Keynes, well, they're an art installation that dates back to the early days of Milton Keynes as a town. Uh, Milton Keynes as a town has only been around for about 45 years. But the thing is, they were quite an, quite an amateurish art installation. Oh, yeah, they, they that, are fundamentally shit. They were just shit. kind of adopted <laughs> and um, publicised and became somehow symbolic of Milton Keynes, didn't yeah. they? Yeah. Yes, yeah, they, they're sitting up... Well, it's, it's arguable about where they are. Did you just insult the concrete cows, then? I did. He's done more than insult them. That's I, th I think there's, I think there's <laughs> photographic evidence of this somewhere. I think that's you, Matt, isn't it? <laughs> Me too, but I don't know what I was pointing out. But they are, they are icons of Milton Keynes, and um, they kind of sit not not in any great place of prestige. They're just kind of in a park next to a main road, aren't they? And you, you drive much. past them, you kind of blink, you miss them. Yeah, it was weirder than that, though, because... There was an original set of concrete cows, which have been through a few misadventures over the years. They've been vandalised. One of them got stolen and turned up at a car boot sale somewhere and then returned. Uh, one of, uh, one, in fact, no, all of them have been repainted at various stages. Oh, in um, various colours by members of the public. Yes, most recently, I think for Halloween about two years ago, someone repainted them all as skeletons. That which was fantastic. Right. That was really well done. <laughs> yeah, it was much better than the original paint job. Yeah. That, didn't, that wasn't saying much. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, to confuse things, though, I mean, the original concrete cows aren't actually in that location anymore. They're now in the city centre, uh, clustered around this old oak tree and an extension to the shopping mall there. This dead tree now. Yeah, well, that's because that's the concrete cows and their attempt to, to become real cows have sucked all the life out of it. Mm -hmm. 
Um, oh, the, I'm not if, convinced those are the real ones. I mean, if you walk past on, on Dark Nights, you can hear them mooing now. You've been reading too much Stross. You really have. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, the, uh, the concrete cows which are in the original location in a field in Bancroft, isn't it? It's, so near Sta- it's, it's near Stacey Bushes, it's one Yeah, there. anyway, it's around there. It's, <laughs> it's just around the back of the KFC. Yes, <laughs> where, where, where I went for lunch today. Which, that? wherever you are in the world, you'll probably know what that is. <laughs> and, yeah, those ones are imposters. They are not the real cows. I don't believe that. That's yeah. a conspiracy theory. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that's why it's called Concrete Cow. And it's a role-playing game convention called Concrete Cow. Hence yes. why it's got the word, it's got con in there somewhere. Yes. Oh, and Crete and Ca- no, hang on. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, one day event, and we'll be there running games. Yes. Yep. Yep. So, uh, sorry, we will have been there running games by the yeah. time we listen to this. The good news, however, is Concrete Cow happens every six months. So, uh, if you are within striking distance of Milton Keynes and uh, one March or September, you fancy coming along and playing games, all three of us will probably be there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you won't have any trouble finding us. It's not quite as big as Gen Con. I mean, I'm not quite sure, <laughs> yes. not quite sure how to compare it, really. It's but w- it, we just say it's not as big. It's one game room at Gen Con. <laughs> <laughs> it, could probably, yeah. it, it could probably fit in one of the toilet cubicles at the venue in Gen Con. <laughs> probably, yeah. <laughs> so, shall we go on to our main topic for the night? And tonight, we actually get to discuss a decent Polanski film. <laughs> I thought I'd get Let's the cheap shot in there. It up. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I think the topic is Matt. We're discussing two films, right? Oh yeah, but one of them's a decent Polanski film. Okay, <laughs> all right. I know Scott just looks perplexed. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, I I I won't argue with the fact that it's decent. Guys, let's try yeah. to get the introduction done. <laughs> okay. Introduction, take two. We're talking about two films. We're talking about Malefique, a French film, and The Ninth Gate. And the thing that links them together is that they're both about malevolent books. I wonder how that fits into the Cthulhu, uh, Cthulhu theme. theme. Yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, it's a hard sell, I think, to Cthulhu players, but we'll do our best. Books, yeah. you say? Mm. One might say tomes. Ooh, that's a fucking good seg, Paul. <laughs> you, <should, laughs> you, you should have a podcast or something. <laughs> One, one might even say it's a Lovecraftian word of the week. And now, the Lovecraftian word of the week. Our Lovecraftian word of the week is... Tome. Matt, what's a Tome. Theatre of the Mind Enterprises, isn't it? <laughs> You're not old enough to remember Theatre of the Mind's Eye. Oh, I've, got a lo- I've got a load of their um, Matt has collections. Matt going back to the dawn of time. <laughs> I, do, I do have quite an extensive collection. <laughs> um, a tome. Noun. One. A book. Well, there's a shock. Um, especially a very heavy, large or learned book. Sounds like our credit rules at work. Two. A volume forming a part of a larger work. It's one of these words which I think, again, we associate a lot with Lovecraft, despite the fact that he didn't really use it as much as you might think. When I was searching through my big uh, file of Lovecraft stories, I I found five uses of it in uh, his main stories. There were a few more in some of the collaborations he did. 
I would guess the reason we associate it with Lovecraft is that it's used, you know, as a generic word for books in the Call of Cthulhu role-playing game, exactly. though, right? Exactly, yes. Mm-hmm. I think that's the interesting thing about it, though. It's a word we associate with Lovecraft because of the role-playing game, not because of any of Lovecraft's stories. Yeah, yeah. And, and I'm interested, just reading the definition again, a book, a very large, heavy book, uh, or a volume um, which is part of a larger work which I didn't really appreciate before. I just thought it was a you know, synonym for a book. A yeah. particularly big one, that's what I wouldn't have... Yeah, like you said, I wouldn't have thought of it as part of a series. I would have thought that would be volume. But then we have the you know, tomes in Call of Cthulhu as any size book. But I'd like the idea of it being part of a larger work, like you, know, mm. you go down to the, the newsagent for your part work Necronomicon. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Introductory offer, only three ninety nine, <laughs> And your eternal soul. <laughs> Next week, D10 Sam loss. <laughs> <laughs> what would the free thing on the cover be, though? Uh, it's got to be an elder sign. Oh, I, I quite like it being picked like wrapped up in black cellophane on a top shelf somewhere. <laughs> Just a little bit of human skin in a in a um, you know, and you get to sew it all together oh, yes. to make the cover. Yeah, <laughs> or, or perhaps a little bit of freeze dried shoggoth or something like that. Nice. You know, Just add water. They wouldn't sell many copies then, though, would they? Well, they, once know, everybody had like rehydrated their bit of shoggoth, that'd be like, okay, nobody's buying it anymore. <laughs> well, not that edition, not well, that volume anyway. Well, actually, no, no. The secret is that the next edition is where you learn how to control the shoggoth. Right. So then someone realised that it would make it a really better marketing ploy to do it the other bloody way round. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Let's move on to taking a look at how Lovecraft used the word and the few times he actually did use it. From the Dunwich Horror... The ancient books taken from Waitley's quarters, while absorbingly interesting and in several cases promising to open up new and terrible lines of research among philosophers and men of science, were of no assistance whatever in this matter. One of them, a heavy tome with an iron clasp, was in an unknown alphabet, this one of a very different cast and resembling Sanskrit more than anything else. And from the horror at Red Hook... The court action revealed that he was using up his income and wasting his principal in the purchase of curious tomes imported from London and Paris and in the maintenance of a squalid basement flat in the Red Hook district where he spent nearly every night receiving odd delegations of mixed rowdies and foreigners and apparently conducting some kind of ceremonial service behind the green blinds of secretive windows. And from the alchemist... Thus isolated and thrown upon my own resources, I spent the hours of my childhood in poring over the ancient tomes that filled the shadow-haunted library of the chateau, and in roaming without aim or purpose through the perpetual dusk of the spectral wood that clothes the sides of the hill near its foot. Moving on to the main topic, let's talk about some films. Before we launch into the discussion itself, just a reminder that the way we tend to do this, and the way we will do this this episode, is that our initial discussion will be the spoiler-free look at the early parts of the film. Then we will probably play some kind of irritating warning to let you know that we're launching into spoilers. It'll probably involve Matt singing in some form. Let's kick off with The Ninth Gate from 1999. The Nine Gates, superb edition. Very rare. The film centres around Dean Corso, a rare book dealer and somewhat underhanded type of salesman in New York City. Yeah, they, they 
set out to portray him as morally questionable from the outset because the first time we encounter him, uh, he's going along doing an estate sale of someone's library. Uh, and you know, the person whose library it is is sitting in the room, but he's obviously had a stroke or something and, and can't speak. And his family's there selling off you know, various books. And you know, Corso is... <laughs> He's picking it up, basically. He, he saying, is. This is worth like hundreds of thousands, yeah. or millions, or whatever. Uh, except for you know the, this, these few books here, which you know, I mean, they're very pretty, but they're not really worth anything. I'll tell you what, I'll give you five grand for them now. And it's, yeah, oh, yeah, all this, right. This and four volume see, set of Don Quixote. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And you can see the guy in the wheelchair is is one good eye just bulging. And his, his, his knuckles whitening. <laughs> um, but yeah. It's it is kind of interesting, I think, that, that you know, they go out of their way to set him up as being kind of morally questionable at this stage. But fundamentally, we, we see very little of it throughout the rest of the film, except for a few key points. I think he's portrayed as a rogue, isn't he? So he's kind of a, love, a lovable rogue. Yeah. He's but, a bit underhand, but, you know, we like him. But, I mean, we'll, we'll get to why I don't think that works for the film later, but, yeah. Corso is hired by a rare book collector by the name of Boris Balkan. Um, he's quite a wealthy collector, but he only specialises in buying certain books that all, as quote, all his books have the same protagonist, the devil. Yeah, and I knew we were off to a bad start here because I, I recognised Frank Langella, who played Balkan, as Richard Nixon. <laughs> from, from Frost Nixon, that's yeah. where I know him. And, and of course he also famously played Dracula in, in the 1970s. <laughs> so, you know, he's... He... <laughs> yeah, he obviously plays a type. Yeah, not one to give spoilers here, but, you know... Yeah, yeah but I, also, I was slightly amused that, you know, he's got a key code on his lift, he's got a key code into the library. Everyone knows he collects books on uh, the devil. And what is the code in there? <laughs> six, 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 six. What's the fucking point? How is that in any way secure? <laughs> Balkan's latest acquisition to his grand library of demonology is a copy of one of the three remaining existing copies of The Nine Gates of the Kingdom of Shadows, otherwise shortened to The Nine Gates because it's a bit of a mouthful. He believes that the book is a forgery. The book, or does he? He suggests yeah. that it might be, or he suggests that he's got misgivings about mm -hmm. it. I'll say mainly because the book is supposedly based on an older work written by the devil himself containing the, met um, the methods by which you can summon the devil. So he wants Corso to go around the world and look at these other uh, two volumes and see if it matches his one. And he says, here you are, take mine with you. Yes. Which is kind of like, really? Okay. Yes, this book that he's paid a million dollars for. I do have to say, it is kind of funny. You're watching the film and they've like got this book that's like a million dollars. It's one of three you know, excellent copies. And they're like, he's, he's like smoking a fag <laughs> over it and dropping ash on it. And they're like picking it up and rifling through it, with, you know, without gloves or anything. Well, this is the thing. I mean, you know, there great. are a number of times where he's in rare bookshops and, and libraries and yeah. so on and chain smoking away. Yeah, I, I just can't imagine any rare book collector tolerating no. that. In the the whole film, there's only one library he goes into where he's told he can't smoke. Yes, that's true. And you know, if you've ever picked, bought a second-hand book or a game or something from someone who has been a heavy smoker, you know you cannot get that fucking smell out. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, it, it, yeah. it just stinks of cigarettes forever after. Yep, I've got a few paperbacks that have that. Yeah. Well... 
Admittedly, you know, if if you are going to have a book that's got an infernal smell about it, I suppose <laughs> one. Yeah, yeah the, the, the can't get rid of the smell of brimstone out of yeah. it. Can you? Yeah. <laughs> it overpowers any nicotine. Okay. Yeah, that, that's pretty much the point where I think we have to stop on the spoiler-free section. Okay, let's move on to the spoiler-free discussion of the second film now, uh, Malefique. French film from 2002. The film opens with a fairly bloody ritual uh, in a what appears to be a prison cell. I mean, we quickly deduce that it's a prison cell. And there's a, a, a man there bending down, taking blood from a wound, from what looks like a, a dead or dying body on the floor, and inscribing uh, signs on the wall. Yeah, and updating this journal as he does so. It's like he's carrying out an experiment. Yeah, he's drawing sigils on the wall and this person's blood, this person who isn't even dead and is sort of watching in horror. <laughs> as he draws each sigil, he's waiting for something to happen and nothing happens and he just updates the book. And then finally he gets the last sigil up there and there's, you know, something happens. For all the... For, I'll just say, while I think of it, for all the blood and gore in this film, the thing that makes you cringe the most is when they get the blood on their fingers and then scrape it on that really rough wall. Yeah. I think that must really hurt your fingertips after a while. Once you done a few of those your fingertips are going to be raw <laughs> yeah. I don't know that's really not the worst no 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 no. but I've really winced at that for exactly the same oh, right. reason okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah not to mention the um, barbecued corpse as well in the room oh yeah. Yeah. yeah 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 it implies that this isn't the first time he's done such things yeah but but this is all the first 30 seconds of the film or something yes yeah. Uh, I mean, this just sets it up, and and we don't actually kind revisit of pre, this. Yeah, is it a yeah. pre-title uh, sequence uh, bit? I think I think it is. Maybe yeah. it is. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So you're not. Quite, I wasn't quite sure. Is this something? That is like, are we seeing the end? It's going to play through to this, or is this? Yeah, something that happened yeah. a long time ago. I wasn't quite sure at this point. But but we do discover yeah. fairly soon that it's a flashback. Mm-hmm. Well, we move on to the present day, uh, or at least you know the present day when this was filmed. Uh, to a prison cell in Bonton, France. Uh, there are three prisoners in it. Uh, <laughs> actually, we, we our first introduction is uh, Marcus cutting off Daisy's fingertip. Oh, uh, God, a chisel, with a chisel. Isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. Have a good holiday. <laughs> yeah, two cellmates. Uh, it's just an excuse to get into the... Um into the, the medical block, isn't it, for a while? Yes, yeah, yeah. Well, it's, it's more than that. I mean, Daisy is this rather odd young man, um, and he, he's got a sort of almost childlike innocence about him, despite the fact that, you know, as you learn a bit later in the film, uh, the reason he's in prison is that he actually ate his infant sister. Because mm. um, he was brought up with pigs. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, as but, you do. <laughs> Uh, but, yeah, this isn't the first finger he's had chopped off. He seems quite delighted about it. And, yeah, it, it's... It um, seems quite ecstatic about it, actually, it doesn't is. he? Yeah. yeah, yeah. And through the film, we see him eating various other inanimate objects. Yeah, the finger has been cut off by uh, his cellmate and lover, Marcus, uh, who is something of an odd character. It's... I mean, this film was made 13 years ago, and I can't imagine the character being portrayed in quite the same way even over quite over such a short period of time. Marcus is a, a transgender character, you know, but 
there's an implication that you know he hasn't fully committed to uh, uh, being a woman, and you know still refers to himself as with a male name. Still refers to himself as being male, despite the fact that he's got breasts, and one muscle that he chooses not to develop anymore. Yes, and wishes to remove. Yeah. Yes. So you know the, the portrayal of you know I, I'll use the male pronoun for him because you know it's, it's what the film uses and it's what the character uses, but it's you know th- that that very aspect of the character is probably something that would be quite jarring to you know I say modern sensibilities. I mean this is only thirteen years. Yeah. But, but the world has changed that much in this time. And curious that he has a, a male uh, name, whereas his cellmate um, has the name Daisy. Yeah. Yes, yes. And there's a third member of the the cell. Yes, LaSalle, uh, who's the librarian at the prison, an old man who uh, pretty much just lies in his bunk and doesn't say much for a lot of the film, seems Mm -hmm. to be a very passive character. Mm -hmm. An older man. Yeah. Yeah. Because he's read all the books in the library multiple times. Yes. But into this this mix of characters, a new character is brought in, uh, Carrere, um, who is a very sort of middle-class, relatively proper man um, who has been uh, arrested for fraud, uh, is hoping to get out on bail. His wife is supposed to be arranging this. We see him meeting with his wife and child at the start, don't we, in the visiting visiting room, and his son gives him an action action figure, figure, like an action man kind of thing. Carrera, all along, is absolutely convinced that he is going to get out soon. uh, that 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 is very much an archetype of prison dramas, isn't it? The guy that thinks... He's quite confident, I'm not going to be here long. It's yeah. fine, guys. Do you want to break out? No, 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 I'll be getting out soon anyway. That, and you know, no, that's <laughs> yeah. not going to happen, mate. No, no, no. no. <laughs> not in a horror film especially. Yes, yeah, not in any film, a crime <laughs> film or anything, isn't it? It's always, they're always going to get screwed over. It's like the cop on one last job. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just a week away from retirement, damn it. Yeah. <laughs> but the characters get to know each other you know, over the course of the next few scenes uh, and then uh, a wild card enters their lives um, and during a bit of hijinks I, I can't remember, Daisy's doing something and ends up knocking into the wall uh, and a brick comes mm-hmm. loose they pull the brick out of the wall and find behind it this journal and cockroaches, lots and of cockroaches, cockroaches. oh yes, <laughs> tome Scott, tome it, yes, <laughs> and, and this tome is the same journal that we saw at the start of the film yeah, it's quite clear, it's quite characteristic Characteristic, isn't yes. it? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's got a, a black cover with ridges on it, uh, and you know, the, we when they're flicking through it, we can see that there's writing in it that's in Greek, in Latin, in French, in many hands by mm. the look of it. As yes, well. and those eagle-eyed amongst us, especially all three of us, when we giggled when we saw "Al as if" <laughs> written on one particular page. Yes, and Fatagan and <laughs> Sothogua. Oh, yeah, it's quite yeah. explicitly Lovecraftian. This is well, actually, only in those words in the book, I guess. But, yeah, um, I, I mean, we'll, we'll talk a bit more when we come to the the spoiler section about yeah. just how Lovecraftian this film is. Uh, at the very least, it's got Lovecraftian trappings. And we can say what happens when he reads one of these aloud. Yes. Because <laughs> if I were running the game, I would probably, in most instances, I tend to play it a bit slow to start with. This is no holds barred. This is like, okay, I'll I, oh, I pick a book up and read a, read a line. Okay, uh, blah, 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 Fatagan, Cthulhu, Sathogwa. Does anything like- happen? Yes! The, the cell bursts into flame. And yeah. it's like, There's a burning shit. sigil on the ground, flames shooting up to the ceiling. Really? Yeah. Who would have thought a lipstick would be that dang deadly? Yeah. <laughs> oh, yes, yeah, of course, they're tracing the sigil out on the ground with Marcus's De- lipstick, and that's... Daisy yeah. is the Daisy who they just completely ignore while it's, oh, can you read that section again? Draws out the symbol that he's seen on the floor. That's, yeah. Yes. 
So it's crazy pyrotechnics from the get-go. Yeah. I, to, to be fair, I think that's much more in keeping with the way I'd run this. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's not this slow burn shit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. We, we're, we're ten minutes into the game and no one's on fire yet. I'm doing something wrong. <laughs> it's normally me who would end up with the aspect on fire. Yeah. One thing that LaSalle works out as well is that this uh, journal they've got belonged to a prisoner who used to be in the, in the prison years ago in the 1920s called Danvers or Danvers. He vanished from his cell under mysterious circumstances. People think he escaped, but, you know, it, it was all very strange. Yeah. yeah the more importantly, that he was known as, uh, known to all the acolytes, I think is the phrase that he uses, saying that he was put in, he was put in prison but then his journal details all his attempting to recreate the tomes that he had in his own library. Mm. So it's almost a, if we use the, the phrase mythos tome, it's almost a compilation of all the best bits of all the other mythos tomes that he had out, that he had out there in the bigger, wider world. Ah. And, and Eldritch's Greatest Hits album. Yes. <laughs> and Daisy starts having dreams. Yes, mm. he does. Uh, he has a dream whereby he walks up uh, to the wall in the middle of the night and puts his hands in it. You see, that's not how it looked when I first saw the film, because I remember the first time I saw this around your place. I thought he was jerking off in the corner. That's what it looked like to me. <laughs> it does kind of look like that, I agree. Yeah. yeah. And then yeah. It just the camera pans down, and hang on a minute, there's an awful lot of blood flowing down that wall. Oh, yeah, <laughs> it's kind of like sucking all his blood out, and then he yeah. draws his hands back, and his fingers have all disappeared at the first knuckle. Yeah, they're yeah. just stumps. Yeah. Just bloody stumps. Yeah, blood all over the place. It's like, what the hell is going uh, on? And, the, and this, this just instills more chaos among the well, four cell members. Well, there, yeah, really. it's, it's, it's kind of weird in that because you know, everyone else is asleep while this happens. And Daisy goes back to bed, obviously thinking this is a dream. And it's not until he wakes up in the morning and doesn't have any fingers. But they're he all re- healed, aren't they? They're all, yeah, the, the stumps yeah. are all healed over and there's no blood. But yeah. Yeah. So there's a big dynamic between the four, which again is very much something you're doing in one of your games, Scott. Is, is it, they've all very much got their own motivation. So some of them want to destroy the book, some of them want to read it, some of them don't want anything to do with it, one of them wants to get out, one of them wants to stay in. You know, there's a, there's a lot of to and fro. Well, let's leave it there. I think we can't go too much further without deeper spoilers. Mm-hmm. Okay, time to start quacking, Matt. So here be spoilers. We are going into deeper territory with both films now, giving it all away. My client wishes to satisfy himself on the book's authenticity. His name is Balkan, Boris Balkan of New York. And we're back with Corso, looking for the Ninth Gate, the other two editions. Corso is first of all contacted by the wife of the former owner of the book. So she is, like most of the sporting characters in this, a member of a, a satanic saint mm-hmm. uh, who basically believes that this book will give them ultimate power. Aren't they called the Silver Serpent? Yes. Is that it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we see a big Silver Serpent on her naked hip, don't we? Yeah. She, she comes along, she basically tries to seduce Corso. Well, she succeeds she in seducing Corso. Mm-hmm. And he's um, like, well, I'll take that, but you're not having the book. Yeah, and then she turns violent. Uh, with the great line of, don't fuck with me, I think we just did. Yeah, <laughs> okay, well, I'm going to bite you. Yeah. <laughs> but, of course, he stashed it with his dear old friend, um, Bernie the bookseller, who then is promptly turns up dead in the same fashion as one of the engravings in the book. Much like the hanged man in, uh, in the tarot. Yes. Yeah. The murderers have not found the copy of the Ninth Gate that Corso has stashed there. Well, Corso grabs the book from the hiding place... Uh, jumps in a taxi, heads off to the airport, and then gets a flight off to Toledo in Spain. Which is where he meets up with the Sinitza brothers. Brothers? There are two of them. 
<laughs> well, kind of. Yes, well, they, they, they're twins played by a single actor. On the screen, it kind of looks a little bit, you can still kind of see that effect where they've kind of got two people and they spliced it together. I mean, it's, it's very, yeah. very subtle, but it just kind of looked like it to me. And then when I read the credits, it is the same guy. Yeah, it's the same guy. And his voice is actually done by Roman Polanski. Oh, is it? Yeah. Interestingly, they match, or at least are very similar to one of the engravings in the book about this almost angelic figure looking down from the clouds um, with... With the bow and arrow. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Which becomes relevant later in, um, later in the, course, um, the course of the film. Now, I have to say, Johnny Depp is a very light traveller. He travels the whole of Europe with this book in a satchel and appears to have no other luggage, <laughs> just a grey kind of like Mac and a, just a shoulder satchel, which just seems to have a book in it. And, yeah. an, and an endless supply of cigarettes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that too. I was pleased that at least by halfway through the film, he'd got a cloth to wrap the book in. Because initially, oh, yes. he's, he's going around and every time he's picking up this million dollar book, he's just chucking it in his satchel and wandering off. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's great. Isn't it? uh, the, the reason why he's visited the shop in Toledo is that this is where he has the lead from uh, Leanna Telford, the wife of the uh, dead former owner. But this is where the book was purchased from. In the book, there's a bit more detail about how they inform him about um, rare book forgeries, and a little bit of that's touched upon in the film, where they show him things like, oh, there's a misprint of this T on this particular page. You can check on the other copies to make sure that that T is still misprinted and so forth. Isn't the, the, the brothers that tell him about the, the, the signatures to the, to the illustrations? On the engravings, yes. On yes. the engravings. Mm -hmm. Some of them are signed just with a simple AT for Aristide Tortia. I'm not sure if I said that right. And others are signed LCF. Dun, dun, dun. I was expecting Robert De Niro to turn up at this point. Yeah, <laughs> he's saying, um, hello, my name is Louis Cipher. <laughs> yeah, that I kind of, yeah, yeah. But I was there to pat myself on the back and go, ah, I know who that is. <laughs> yes, and then 30 seconds later, so does the lead. The revelation for our protagonist, Corso, is that only three of the, the illustrations in the book that he's carrying have got the LCF signature and the other six have got the other signature. So three of them are by the devil. Corso then heads off to Portugal, uh, catches a train, and on the way there, he sees a girl on the train who he last saw at, Bulk, uh, at a lecture that Balkan gave. And the library in New York as well. Oh yes, yeah, so this, this woman does seem to be following him. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, curiously played by Polanski's wife. Yeah, it's Emmanuel Seinger, or however you pronounce her, her yeah. name. Would probably be better if he had found an actor for the job though. But it's, it's also a girl in the book. No, no, I just meant I didn't think she could act very well. Oh. <laughs> Nepotism is the least of Plansky's faults, I'm sure. <laughs> yes, yes, I'm sure we'll move on to that. Anyway, we get to Portugal where uh, Corso meets uh, Fargus, who has got this fantastic old mansion, I suppose, out in the countryside with no furniture in it uh, and just really a collection of books which he takes out in dusts and airs every day. Yeah, hold on, which he says, oh, I've taken great lengths to protect them and shield them from light. No, you haven't. You've got them in a <laughs> massive room with huge windows. They're, not, yeah. they're just, they're not, oh, and they're protected from rats. No, they're not. They're sitting in the middle of the floor <clears throat> in the countryside. <laughs> How? Yeah, are you, what, you dust them every day? Great. <laughs> Because yeah. there's one thing that attracts rats is dust. <laughs> I thought it was walls, personally. But. So he takes a look at the book and, you know, it quickly becomes apparent that, that three of the illustrations in here 
are also by LCF, but it's a different three. Yep. So he's got to go to each of the tomes and find the differences. And the difference between the... I mean, this is why I knew that you would love this film, Matt, because this is just the kind of thing, as a player <laughs> in a game, you would love, if you were given these handouts, you know, those mm -hmm. illustrations in a game, and you had to spot the differences. You'd love that. Hang on, with that key was in the other Scott hand. Scott would hate ago. it. You would yeah. love it. Mate, I'd be <laughs> sitting there saying, can I make an intro? <laughs> um, so there's, there's very subtle things, like there's a figure outside a door, and he's got two keys in his left hand, but in the other one, they're in his right hand. And there's a different number of keys. Yeah. yeah. And it's, it's just very subtle little differences that you have to kind of look carefully, and then he sees yes. he's got the LCF, not the AT, and starts putting these all together. That's kind of the key to the whole thing, really. Yeah, the fact that there are three books, three sets of engravings, making nine in total. Yeah. So Corso makes inquiries about buying the book, and Fargo says, no, no way, not going to sell. When Corso's leaving, that's when someone tries to run him over. Uh, the girl... Turns up on a bike. Turns up on the bike. Uh, the, the girl he saw on the train turns up on a motorbike, rescues him, takes him off. And between them, they hatch a plan to go back and break into the house and, and steal the book. Becomes a bit irrelevant, though, as soon as they get there. Yeah, and and find Fargus floating face down in the fountain outside his house. Sleeping with the fishes. <laughs> Quite literally. Um, yeah. Well, not literally sleeping. He's dead, of course. And there weren't any fishes in there, but apart from there that... There were. Was, were they? Yeah. Not the goldfish. Goldfish. Yeah. Oh, OK, I missed those. And what's left, the, the bit that will rouse up the book collector in me... Yeah, there's just the spine left. <laughs> They've thrown it in the fire. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Well, just enough for him to see that somebody's torn out the three pages with the illustrations on, I think. Yes. Because he can open up the book and he can, yeah. he, he can see that those pages are missing. Mm -hmm. That was the most distressing part for you, Matt. <laughs> not only did they tear up the book, they, they, they burnt, they burnt it. it. Yeah. That was a wonderful prop. They fucking burnt it. <laughs> <laughs> well, we move on then to Paris. Pretty much exactly the thing. The same thing happens there. He finds he finds the fact there's another th um, the missing th the basically the other three LCF engravings are in the third book. In a in a typical Call of Cthulhu style scenario, where you you've done the mission once, and then like you've done the mission in Portugal or where it was. Now we go to Paris. Okay, let's do another mission. Oh, it's just the same as the one in Portugal. But different NPCs. You know, yes, we, different we, NPCs. We, we, we've, we've got a, you're doing the same thing again. We, we've got a sinister baroness in a wheelchair who's missing a hand who talks about you know having taken part in satanic orgies mm -hmm. when she was young. So yeah. there's a bit of colour. You get a few mm -hmm. other clues. Yes. Yeah. 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 And, and a slightly different set dressing. But she ends up dead again. And they burn the book again! <laughs> what the hell? But he, does, he, he gets the illustrations. Um... And together with uh, with this with the mystery woman, they head. Oh, they they follow. Um, they follow Telfer, who's stolen the book from behind yes. his uh, behind his mini bar, because that was a really good great place to hide it. Yeah, nobody <laughs> was going to find it there. <laughs> to to this mansion out in the French countryside. Yeah, and we, we, which... just in case you don't know, as tank ritual is going on, they've lined the whole of the uh, <laughs> what do you call it the, the driveway, driveway yeah. with uh, kind of um, burning uh, torches, torches, and yeah. so on. Yeah. <laughs> ritual here. Yes. <laughs> we might as well have a sign saying, you know, ritual business only. Investigators not welcome. Go yes. home. <laughs> it's one thing to bear in mind up until this point that a lot of people have been dying around Corso. And he's worried the fact that he's going to be implicated in um, in basically a lot of deaths and so on. Balkan quite happily strides up, um, strides into the middle of the um, into the middle of the meeting, strangles someone in, um, in plain view, yeah. kicks the body on the floor and goes... 
and makes everyone run away. Well, yeah. well, and Corso is going to intervene at this stage, but the girl convinces him not to, mm-hmm. but points out to him that by letting uh, this murder happen in front of all these witnesses, mm-hmm. then, you know, th- that gets Corso off the hook. And something we've uh, omitted to say about this girl, oh, I yeah. think, is she the fact can fly. that she can fly yeah. and do kind of martial arts and is a kind of, like... Her eyes change colour. Supernatural ninja, mm-hmm. yeah. Yes. But more of that to come. Yeah. Corso, at this point, has already killed a character. A very strange, white-haired, but different-coloured moustache henchman who never speaks. Um, that when they're about to be taken down to the basement to be shot, he ends up becoming... He, he succeeds his fighting brawl role quite adeptly, um, throws the guy down the staircase, and then promptly beats him to death with his shoe. Which which makes the girl very happy at that mm-hmm. point. And, you know, she beams and says, oh, I didn't know you had it in you. Yes. <laughs> which is actually a fairly important point. Yes. <laughs> the robes. Yeah. The nice shiny <laughs> robes, all the cultists wear. Oh, yeah. The next, next thing we see, Johnny Depp coming in, in the road, pulling the hood up and just kind of walking up to the, all the uh, all the all the people in robes and just kind of blending in. You know, well, that, that, that is classic Call of Cthulhu. Knock them out, take the uniform. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh. He then follows Balkan, who has oddly enough got all the cop- um, got all the book plates that he needs to perform his ritual to try and summon the devil. And so he goes off to this <clears throat> this uh, castle in the countryside. Which was illustrated on one of the plates. Yeah, uh, yeah. But yeah, he then made a big show of of <laughs> saying that he found it by sending a postcard to Telfer. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, sort of. I got here first, and so on. Pride before a fall, Scott. Yeah, <laughs> which I mean, or pride is... before a demonic ritual going wrong. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it is the kind of. I mean, it struck me as being the kind of thing that if I was a Call of Cthulhu keeper putting together a scenario, you know, and. Uh, if I was trying to get that bit of information about where the ritual was taking place, you know, by the time I'd resorted to something like, oh, yeah, you find the postcard that he sent someone else that says where it's all taking place, I'd really be scraping the bottom of the barrel. <laughs> yeah. Of course, he tries to perform uh, perform his ritual, only to realise that, no, he's not impervious to flame. Yeah, he what? is. He's fireproof. He's fireproof. For a minute. Oh, no. <laughs> I, I, I love the fact that yeah, he, he decides to prove that he's fireproof. I mean, first of all, he burns himself a little bit. Well, but he holds then, his hands in the flame. That, that's he? right. Ah, yeah. See, see, yeah, yeah. I, 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 I can wave my hands around over a flame and I don't get burnt. Therefore, I shall prove that I'm completely immortal by pouring a gallon of petrol over myself and setting <laughs> myself on fire. I feel nothing. It's all fine. Ow. Ah, hot, 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 <laughs> hot. <laughs> Only for um, Depp to then escape and bump into our girl again. Insert the one ran- um, random sex scene in the film. Bow, chicka, wow, wow. Well, yeah. They had the sex scene where you see her face change and become quite demonic during it. You know, during the scene with the burning castle in the background and and so on. But yeah, after that, she informs Corso that the reason the ritual failed is that one of the plates was a forgery. That the brothers in Toledo uh, have got it. Mm-hmm. He turns up at the shop, finds that the brothers are gone, but there's there's other brothers there now which have the same name and uh, are played by the same actor apparently. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> just without the moustache. Yes, yeah, without the old age <laughs> makeup. Uh, who are in the process of dismantling the place? They, you know, as they uh, move a uh, bookcase, the actual plate just floats off the top and lands at Corso's yeah. feet, showing a certain naked girl outside a castle reading a book. Uh, a girl yeah. that looks very much like the girl. Mm-hmm. Well, it, it isn't just the girl; it's the beast of the apocalypse with yeah. the girl's face. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah. It cuts then that now he's got the um, the correct original nine plates. 
Corso wanders back to the castle. Door opens, white out, strangely almost heavenly, white light pouring mm. out of the and um, pouring out of the door, and cut to black. Mm. Yeah, an ending I think a lot of people weren't very happy with. I loved it. I loved it. I thought it was good. I no, it was I, good I, 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 I thought the ending was about the best part of it. Um, I thought getting there was pretty fucking tedious, but I thought it had a decent payoff. <laughs> it's a culmination of this is why I was saying earlier about um, establishing um, Corso as a thoroughly unlikable character at the start. Mm. It charts almost a juxtaposition that he starts off as a character you don't particularly like and he's but is fundamentally a not a bad person. He's a bit of a scumbag, but he's not like thoroughly evil. Mm. But turning him at the end of the film to the character that you've um, charted throughout the rest of the film as being the person that you're now rooting for to get to the end of it and he's now become a murderer and wants to commune yeah, with the but, devil. But but that, I mean that's that's sort of the point. For me, that they haven't done a very good job of selling that transition throughout the film. Um, Corso, throughout the film, to me, is something of a cipher. He is almost an, a passive participant. He strikes me as being like a Call of Cthulhu investigator in the worst type of Call of Cthulhu game, mm. who is pa passively following the trail of breadcrumbs that the GM has set up, going from you know, point A to point B, uh, hitting the clue dispenser, clue pops out, the clue tells him to go to point C, he goes to point C, hits the clue dispenser, and then you know goes to the end and it's... Ah, everything goes goes horribly mm. wrong during that time the character doesn't really actually change that much we're told he does but we don't really see that it's in big jumps i'd admit that well no it, the, the only real jump there is the killing of the henchman which is yeah fairly brutal i mean it starts off as self-defense but obviously yes he he goes through uh and and is a bit more brutal with it than he needs be but as far as this being some kind of moral spiral because i mean to me the point of the film is you know the the, the girl in it is either satan or uh, possibly or one of his minions or, or, or possibly the whore of babylon yeah, yeah but, but seems more, seems more the case but but either way you know corso has been chosen for some part in you know a a large apocalyptic event you know, oh well, well mm, potentially not sure about that but but he is he is being chosen or groomed to be, sort of become this this demon or or Satan's mate, at the end of it and fulfilling this this uh, prophecy, and then at the end something happens, something big changes. We, we we're not sure what that is, yeah. but the fact that they're using you know, uh, they're using imagery from the Book of Revelation, you know, makes Quite me blatantly. Think, yeah, makes yeah. makes me think that you know they, this is heading into Revelation's territory. For all that, if we're supposed to be seeing Corso being built up into you know, some kind of key for unlocking all this, which is what it felt like the payoff of it was, we, we, we're not really seeing much happening to him at all. Or at least we're not seeing much change in him. It felt more of just a personal journey just directed on him rather than uh, an apocalyptic event. I get what you're saying about Revelations, and it, it played on you know, images from that. But it didn't seem to be um, signing some world-changing event or apocalyptic event. It just seemed that it all yeah. focused on him and he had entered the Ninth Gate. But, but didn't, it didn't but, concern the rest of the world. But if it, even if it's that, I, I, I would have wanted to have actually seen some character development other than, you know, um, you know a, a bit morally questionable at the start, carries on being... You know, perhaps a bit dodgy at times. Then you know, gets carried away and kills someone. And you know, that, that, that's that's not really transformative. That is not a character that changes or grows or 
or, or earns what happens in the end. Yeah, I think it's a journey that would happen better in literary form. It's possible to do it and um, to do it on screen, but as you say, I think that well, not time constraint, but there wasn't a, a larger effort made beyond those few instances to show it. No, I mean it's. I, I, this is my problem with the film in general. That it is, you know, for for a film that's that's very visually pleasing to look at, that's got a good cast, has got good production values, and you know, in in the end, does actually go somewhere relatively interesting. It is a depressingly banal film for most of it. It is the most obvious, cosy, lazy kind of horror. No, I'll challenge that it is a horror almost. I mean, it's. Well, um, I, I think it wants to be, but it just at, doesn't. At times have the balls early on, at the bookshop um, after Bernie's been hung, they, there's some sort of whimsical music. Oh, that, that music mm -hmm. all the way through. That, that that incidental music plays all the way through, and you know what it reminds me so much of the incidental music from Ghostbusters. Oh, it, 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 oh, yeah. It yeah, is almost note for note. <laughs> right. Uh, and that kind of um, lifts the mood of the film. It kind of tells you this isn't really a gritty, serious horror film. It's kind of something else. And I, I kind of like um, Johnny Depp's character throughout the film. Yeah, he's kind of a likeable scoundrel. He's a bit like Han Solo or something, you know, conning those <laughs> people at the start. You know, we're kind of on his side. We kind of like him. He's not got the same charisma. No, no. But he's, you know, he's that kind of level of roguishness. <laughs> yeah, except he doesn't shoot first. It takes him a while to do that. He shoots first. No, no. I'm sorry, I'm shot first. Moving on. <laughs> um, and um, you know the fact that it, it doesn't have a lot of character development oh, it, in this film didn't really bother me too much. It's just because it's kind of got that kind of fairly light feel. It's just kind of it, I, was, I was just kind of carried along with it, and I really enjoyed watching it. It's more of a thriller than a horror. It feels a bit more like you know more like kind of um, Dennis Wheatley kind of old yeah. kind of Hammer style thing. It's a bit tongue in cheek almost. Yeah, this, Did you not this enjoy is... watching it, Scott? Is that what you're trying to say? <laughs> I, 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 I found it tolerable, but yeah, it, it, it is the film equivalent of Dan Brown. It really is. This is almost like us two agreeing, me and Paul agreeing on a, on a, Polan <laughs> a view on a Polanski film and Scott being the odd one out. When, when, when would that happen? <laughs> I can't imagine that. that wouldn't... I'll have to look back in the earlier episodes to see if that's ever happened before. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know. I, I can't think of it. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I really enjoyed watching it. I found it entertaining. It was I watched it with Emily, my daughter, and you know it was kind of the thing where you could not not chat throughout it, but you could make the odd, the odd oh, humorous yeah. comment. It was very yeah, delightful. You certainly don't need to pay attention. <laughs> no, I've pay <laughs> no attention to Dord. Um, I, I I just really enjoyed watching it. it was, uh, no, like, likewise. I remember when I saw it for the first time, I really really liked it um, so much that I went out and brought the DVD, and I've watched it dozens of times. Well, appropriately enough, it's based on a book. Indeed. Um, El Club Duma, um, by the Spanish writer Altaro Perez Reverte, who I've probably mispronounced badly. <laughs> this is why I left it to you to pronounce. Yes, yeah, yeah, thank any, you. Any, any Spanish listeners can send any abuse Matt's way now. <laughs> Interestingly, the book has more plots in it, but they've been retooled so that they all, they all effectively become the one plot line in the film. It's where the title comes from. Where, where, where does Alexander Dumas come into the Ninth Gate, the film? Well, it doesn't. Um, in the book, however, Corso, um, Corso's original line of investigation is that he's looking into an original manuscript that referred, supposedly comes from the Three Musketeers, that various people throughout the course of the book are taking on roles accordingly from various Dumas works, specifically from the Three Musketeers. But 
every literary angle, um, a lot of the dealing um, details about forgery and rare book collecting and maintenance and such have all been cut from the film. Right, so it's been simplified for the film, which seems a, a sensible enough decision. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's pretty essential when you're adapting something to a film. Mm-hmm. And to be fair, I think, I think it works quite well, that even though it is the secondary plot in the book, it works better being the single plot in the film. Yeah, look close. And you see, only six of the nine engravings were signed by Aristides Tortia. Yes. And the other three? But this is one of them. LCF. Who's LCF? Let's finish our discussion of Malefique. So Daisy's lost all his fingers in the wall. He's off to the infirmary again. Yep. But then he comes back and decides that... Um, the, the thing to do, obviously, is eat the book. Eat the book. Because we've seen him eat stuff before. As Matt mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. we've seen him eat... A, uh, he stole um, LaSalle's watch chain and ate yes. that. This is just what the player would do, isn't it? It mm-hmm. is. You're a compulsive eater. I'll eat the book! <laughs> You'll go, well, with some tomato ketchup? No, I'll just eat it raw, it's fine. Uh, and we discover, you know, as LaSalle points out later, that the book defends itself. The book doesn't like this. No. This leads to a bad end for Daisy. I mean, this is one of the many points in the, in the film where it kind of almost treads into Clive Barker territory. Mm, yeah. I, was, I was going to say the same thing. With some good uh, uh, kind of bone-popping, uh, joint-twisting... Unnerving, cringing... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Basically, Daisy's form is lifted up into the air. and Treated like a ragdoll. Yeah, yeah. His, his limbs are twisted and bent in on each other and, you know, crushed. Uh, there's, you know, you see one of his arms twisted round and everything goes pop and crunch. And Same with his feet. Down. Yeah. And eventually his limb form just drops down into the ground. Now, this is a bit weird because then the prison guards come along and, like, take him away... He fell out of bed. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> repeatedly. <laughs> no inquest into this. Okay, let's just... Again, in the game, you'd be like, oh, I don't really want to have them all separated and interrogated. Okay, well, yeah, they take him away so and... Uh, they're in prison already. What are they going to that, do? That occurred what? to me. What yeah. are they going to do? Never mind. They get a new mate in their, in their cell of four. With yeah. an amazing name. Come on. Uh, yeah. Yeah. What was it? <laughs> Hippolyte Picus. Yes, that's yeah. it. Mm-hmm. Really and rolls off the tongue. He's a guy with a the little cine camera, and uh, <laughs> yeah, just the kind of thing you'd as... expect to see someone walking into a prison with. Yeah, a little camcorder. Mm-hmm. No obvious way of charging it. Uh, no spare tapes or anything like that. But no, never mind yeah. that. Yeah. We're going to film it all. He's yeah. seen Blair Witch. He's ready. <laughs> and also, he as he's unpacking his stuff, he pulls out the book from his suitcase. Now, yeah. what we forgot to mention was that you know, following Daisy's death. Uh, Marcus is so upset about this that he chucks the book out the window. Picus turns up with this book, pulls it out, but it's not the book. It's a cookbook! Now, do you think Picus is being played by Daisy's player? You know, after Daisy <laughs> killed? Do you think it's new? I think, it, I think it's just the, the, the keeper having a lot of fun with this insane character. He comes in, he's got a cine camera, and then he gets the book out of his bag! <laughs> ah, take that! <laughs> You're not getting rid of this book! <laughs> You're not moving from this room, the book will come back like a yeah. boomerang. <laughs> You're going to have to think of something better. Yeah. Yeah, actually, this film is basically a game run by the worst kind of railroading GM. <laughs> you're in a cell. You're isolated. You cannot leave. 
Yeah, and no matter how much you try to get rid of the book, it's always coming back. Mm-hmm. Even the guy who ate the book, well, he, he managed to get out. He just like, I, I, I've had enough of this game. I'm eating the book. I know he's going to kill me, but I'm just going to eat it. <laughs> Turn head round, no pea soup moment from the exorcist, just crunch dead. Yeah. <laughs> and then I'll see you in the bar later. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you want to, I've got another character. Do you want to play Picus? No. Nah. <laughs> so anyway, Picus you know, films a few things around the cell. Carrera looks at uh, the footage that he's filmed and sees a really weird little bit involving Marcus. Yeah. But that's after the fact that he wakes up and finds it and um, the camera and the book on the floor, only to then be told by the guard, what are you talking about, this Picus guy? No such person was put in your cell. No one replaced the lunatic. And in the night, we see Picus leave, don't we? We see him, I think, read the book and and then just walk through the wall. Yes. (laughs) Right, so some crazy stuff is happening and they've got his camera and they look at it Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, there's this, this weird footage of, of Marcus wiping blood across his mouth like mm. lipstick uh, with this aura around him. Now, to me, that's the freakiest part of the film. That's, that's the bit that... Uh, I'd agree, that was yeah. pretty strange. It, 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 yeah. yeah, I mean, that little snippet, I mean, even before we realise where it comes from a bit later, just mm-hmm. on its own, that's quite a disturbing scene. Mm-hmm. For all the blood and guts and horror we've seen so far, you know, there's just a little smear of blood in it, but there's just something about the atmosphere. The rest of the film is almost like a Clive Barker film, but then you've got this 30 seconds that's come out of a David Lynch film yeah, just thrown was, in the middle of it. That was, that was a good touch. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And of course, we see Picus reading the book. You can't hear anything, but, you, but they can make out what page he was looking at. Well, you recognise the sigils on it as being the sigils from the opening scene. Yeah, yeah. What are you going to do now? Well, you're going to open the book up to that page, start reading. And yes, yeah, about this point, isn't it that uh, you know Lascelles starts coming clean about the fact that he uh, he knows uh, Danvers' backstory. He knows what the book is. He's yeah. a he's a cultist. Yeah, yeah pretty yeah. much. They do this ritual, they, they walk through the wall the same way as Beakers did, the same way as we saw Danvers did at the start of the film. And where do they end up? In another prison cell. In the same Dan- prison cell. In Danvers's prison cell from 1920s. They're now trapped in this cell that's got no doors, no windows, nothing. We don't even know when it is. Is it yeah. now? Is it? Mm-hmm. What do you do in a situation like that? Well, if you're LaSalle, you pick up a sharp rock from the ground and castrate Marcus. Yeah. Marcus dies, and then we get that scene that we saw on the camcorder, this kind of ghostly version of him, mm-hmm. uh, which is no less creepy this time round. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then there's just the two of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think it's at this point, isn't it, that LaSalle makes his point about uh, how the book isn't designed to provide an escape or anything like that. What it's designed is to... Well, I mean, Make your like, wishes come true, Scott. Yeah, sort of. I mean, there's, there's almost two different ways of looking at this, that it's designed to punish people by twisting their wishes against them. Mm. Um, it's the d wish spell. Yeah. I, it, it is basically the monkey's paw. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because we also learn to find out what happened with Danvers in the opening scene then. Yes. Um, that he his Im- obsession oh, with yes. becoming was young was because he was sealing placentas and making uh, weird concoctions with him. That's how he ended up in prison. That he finally finds a spell that he needs to cast, and he reverts to effectively be the baby and dust. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah he gets younger and younger and yeah. younger. Nice bit of uh, kind of uh, animation there. Yeah, with his feet is crawling along mm. along under the bed, trying to find shelter, and then just kind of ending <laughs> ending up as this kind of pool of of stuff under the bed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not inspiration for you at all, there, Scott. Is it <laughs> dead baby? I, no, I, 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 I've done worse. <laughs> Uh, but the one th- thinking, one thing we didn't mention about um, our dear cultist in the cell, 
the way he became in prison mm. um, oh, yes. was one of the uh, best, even though it wasn't nothing visualised about it, just his speech about what had happened, um, one of the best moments of a cultist flipping out and lose, um, losing San. Um, that all his books in his library started mocking him. The words started flowing from the page. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. When he just lost all control, and that, that's when he ended he, up slicing his, his wife. wife. Yeah. Yeah. His wish is that he wants knowledge. He wants the knowledge yeah. of the book. So the book interprets this as, as him merging with the book and yeah. becoming the book. Especially when he realises that um, dear old Picus wasn't reading the inside of the book, he was reading the Braille on the outside cover. Yes. Ah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Right, and so, yeah, we get this, this fantastic scene of, of um, LaSalle just merging with the book, his hands becoming the cover of the book and you know, just draining the life out of him. That reminded me a little of like, something from beyond, really, yeah. kind of, those kind of effects. And then we end up with the last bit where um, Carrera is, you know, his, he states his wish, his wish is to be reunited with his son. Well, no, to see his son To again. see his son, yeah. We end up with this, this little coda, the wife and son coming along to the prison to collect his effects afterwards. And one of the effects in there uh, is the, uh, the action figure that the son gave Carrera at the start of the film. And yeah, we, we, we see them kind of driving off in the car afterwards and the son playing with the action figure and we get a point of view shot from the action figure and you know, this muffled voice and then just the close-up of its face with these two human eyes kind of looking out in panic. Mm -hmm. And he gets to see his son again. Mm. The and, end. Yeah. Yes. It's yeah. kind of like a little bit of a twist at the end of a short story, that bit. It's a very nice ending. It's a very neat thematic ending. At the same time, I, I don't know, I, I wanted a bit more than just kind of simple punishment and twisting. It doesn't wishes. really seem to gel with the rest of the film. No. It, in a word, I'd say unsatisfying, but yeah. not disappointing. It was, it was yeah. it's certainly an evolution of you knew where it was going, and it was signposted enough that this is where it, it made sense that it ended up there, but it just felt yeah, a bit lacklustre, maybe. But the tone of the rest of the film was very much horror movie, yeah. and that is very much kind of Twilight Zone, kind of, you know... A bit odd. I think the other reason it disappointed me a bit was the film introduces at least the window dressing of the mythos fairly early on. You've got these these really weird elements being brought in. Every time they cast a spell, they're invoking Yogg-Sothoth. Mm -hmm. I don't know. At the end of it, it it felt a bit moral. For you know, mm. I, I I always see you know the the mythos, and you know as I said, they're using it as window dressing here rather than the core of the film. But it sort of made me hope that there'd be that sort of alienness, that weirdness of the mythos uh, to this. But mm -hmm. instead, it ended up being you know a fairly mundane morality piece in no. the end. Well, still somewhat off screen. That it never really fully came in, that it was just, say, just hints all the way through, no yeah. payoff. If you compare it to the payoff of something like Martyrs, another French film from mm -hmm. a few years later, very different. Yes. Considering how good the rest of the film was, given the limitations, and this is obviously a very low-budget film, they've got well, one set, so. a very yeah. small cast. Very little in terms of costume, etc. Yeah. But yeah, you know, and the special effects they've got are fairly limited, but they do very, you know, they do well with they're, them. They're pretty competent, but they're they're um, for the for the nineteen eighties that have been fairly impressive. It's a very very good example of how, with a creative script and a bit of imagination, you can use your limitations uh, to your uh, and turn them into strengths. 
I think one interesting thing about the context of Malefique is the fact that it came out probably just ahead of this great wave of extreme horror uh, that sort of typified the French horror scene uh, in, in the 2000s. I mean, uh, 2002, this came out a year before High Tension, which you know, I think is the one that, that really sort of kicked that movement going. And so it, it, it's... It's probably quite an overlooked film. If it had come out maybe two years later and it had been identified with the rest of the movement with things like Martyrs and Inside and Frontiers and so on, then it would probably be a much better known film than it it's is. It's got quite a different feel to those. It's a bit more of an old-fashioned horror film compared to those. It is, but at the same time, you know, it's, it's still pretty gory in places. It's uh, No, I agree. It's good know. and it's French and it's from a similar period. It just... It, but the... Those films, like Inside and Martyrs and, and Switchblade Romance, although they feel more contemporary, whereas this one feels, to me, a bit more old-fashioned. I'm just sorry they didn't do an English-language version with uh, Ronnie Barker. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Richard Beckinsdale. Mm -hmm. That's not jam in your porridge. <laughs> Okay, we've seen a couple of films about books. They rarely ever turn up in Call of Cthulhu games. So how can we use these themes in a, in a good old-fashioned Call of Cthulhu setting? What can we do with books? No, I'm, I'm stumped. Let's, let's, <laughs> let's move on. Well, I think giving the books a bit of a life of their own is, is the thing that we see in these, isn't it? <laughs> the book was only defending itself. Yeah, yeah mm -hmm. I, I like the idea of intelligent books, of books with an agenda. And th there's elements of that sort of in The Ninth Gate. I mean, you could, you, you could interpret it that way. You could yeah. interpret the girl as a kind of a, a minion or a servant of the as, book almost. As, as an avatar, you? even. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's written much more large in Malefique. And I think that's a really interesting approach to, uh, to Mythos Tomes. I mean, when I think back to my early Call of Cthulhu games, Mythos Tomes and those were, you know, pretty much straightforward rewards for players. And you go around, you research enough things, you poke in, you know, in enough places, you'll find these books that will give you the information you need uh, to actually understand the threat a bit more. Sure, your sanity will take a bit of a ding. And, you know, there may be a few useful spells in there. Mm. Yeah. But yeah, you also you're... take your sanity, give your sanity a ding as well. Yes. <laughs> but, but, you know, it, particularly in those you know, early published Call of Cthulhu adventures, it, it did seem to be pretty much a given that, you know, these were rewards for the Yeah, that, that, when you've done the boss fight and you find the treasure chest, it's got a tome in it. Exactly. It's got a tome and, I don't know... Maybe like a magic some... item. Yeah, maybe a mm -hmm. magic item. That's a bit different from the way Lovecraft handled them in his stories. But even then, the, the, the books in Lovecraft stories, I mean, he talks about them being you know, hideous and forbidden and so on. But, you know, when it gets down to it, everyone in his dog has read the fucking things. And, you know, they, they, they very rarely seem to, you know, in his stories, have done anything too hideous. They seem to be a corrupting influence. But, uh, he, so I think he mentions that in his stories, but you very rarely actually see it. Mm -hmm. you, you get all these characters, all these protagonists in Lovecraft stories who've read these mythos terms, but how many of them have been changed by them? Well, I think what often seems to occur is that, or I say often, I think one or two instances, the, the, uh, the protagonist of the story has read the book, that's all fine, and then later on they meet something or they see something which suddenly they go, oh, crap what I read in that book is true. Yeah. I mean, that's exactly what we see in um, At the Mountains of Madness. There's another way that, you know, the, these films, you know, Malefic in particular, indicates that we can use mythos terms, which is, 
Yeah, they, they are the repositories of all this kind of alien knowledge and sorcery or whatever you want to call it, these, you know, ways of perverting and modifying reality. Then, you know, to me it sort of makes a bit of sense that these books, you know, should by their very essence have some corrupting, you know, some effect on reality. That they, they disturb reality the way a gravitational force would disturb the space-time continuum. It's it's nice also the fact that the book isn't set in stone, in that for instance you see in one instance it's just the one ritual that's in the book with the same diagram on every page, um, another where it turns itself into the cookbook and you see all the illustrations and so on, then it just goes completely blank and oh by the way you know it's got braille on the cover that there's again there's multiple layers of it, yeah. if anything when it mentioned about the braille on the cover it remind, reminded me a little bit of Vornheim, because yes. it has the whole book is used for some uh, for some particular purpose. And if we start to accept the idea of a book as an intelligent, as an active participant in the story, uh, or in the game, it's all very well, you know, having something like the book in Malefique, where its two agendas seem to be A, to protect itself, and B, more importantly, to bring some kind of punishment to, you know, those who would use it. Mm. Are there more interesting things that we could find you know, a sort of self-aware and active mythos tome um, doing. So it's got a specific agenda that it's yeah. following. And this seems to be a scenario to me, not just like a generic application for all tomes. Yes. Um, I keep thinking of almost a book form of Aurac, if you were going to put it, um, take the Blade oh, yes. 7 yeah. uh, route there, that, yeah, this, this thing is... Uh, highly intelligent, highly knowledgeable tool that you can use, but also one real royal pain in the butt when it wants to be. <laughs> you could even have it that, you know, the, the book perhaps, you know, you, you go through and you, you, you learn certain things from it, you learn certain spells and so on, but when you get round to actually trying to use them in anger later on and, and you know, refer to things on the spot, it changes things subtly so that, you know, perhaps if it's got an agenda, you know, you reckon you've learned this spell or you, you're, you're going to use it in such a way, but it's just changed it subtly so that it's doing something a bit different. I think I'm going to summon a star vampire, no, it turns out to be a fire vampire. <laughs> yeah, that, that that kind of thing, or or even yeah, the the idea that this might even be you know some kind of. I mean, we we've talked I think before about you know William Burroughs and languages of virus from outer space and stuff like that. The you know perhaps even you know there's a self-replicating aspect to the book that you know it's uh, yeah it's it's implanting its knowledge into you know human minds and gestating there, and something else is coming out. Or equally, if you had to, if it was a game whereby you had to read from the book, you know, to cast these spells that, you know, each time you open the book it is subtly different, then you're never going to be quite sure what that spell is going to do. Because if every time you open it it's a little bit different, you know, what's it going to do today? Mm -hmm. um, if you take away from the players the ability to kind of just simply memorise the spell, if you say they haven't got time in the scenario, they've got to read it. Um, and there's also the, the aspect of this that Danvers, at least, is adding to the book as he goes along with his knowledge. That, you know, perhaps, again, this is a way of interacting with the Mythos Tome, that, you know, it expects something from you in return. It's giving you the knowledge you need in order to cast that spell or, or learn that particular thing you need. But at the same time, you know, you might have knowledge that it needs and it wants you to, you know, perhaps... So if the book gets stolen during the scenario, the people who steal it are going to know something about you. Yeah. 
They're going to know it's going to have uh, absorbed some of your secrets. That could be even more sinister if you're only half aware of the fact that you've been mm. doing that. Yeah, yeah. Maybe, maybe you've been sitting there at night and you've been dreaming that you've been writing stuff in this book. Um, and then, you know, a little while later, someone you know, else is flicking through it and sort of says, hang on, isn't that your handwriting? Mm. <laughs> so, it's, I mean, a book is kind of a channel to the author's mind in a way. If this were literally a channel to the author's or author's minds, some of their consciousness is actually absorbed into the book. And you can kind of, by reading it, you can communicate with these people. Or at least an echo of them. Yeah. Mm. Or the book might want you to think that and just creates an image of what you think that, um, that person is. Is it bad of me that I'm thinking about the Half-Blood Prince now? I, I was thinking of <laughs> Horcrux, yes. <laughs> I, and, and also, you know, if it is drawing elements or echoes of these people in here for you to communicate with, what is it drawing out of you so that you know, the next person mm. can communicate with part of you in there? What are you losing to it? What happens if you then burn the book? Not good things. You're going to be very precious about this book now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because part of you is absorbed into it. We could talk about books all night, and we probably have at several points. I think we have repeatedly, yes. <laughs> but but not tonight. <laughs> no, we'll put our bibliophile tendencies to one side for now. Yes. Two very different films, but about both about tomes there. Yes, indeed. Yeah. One uh, was actually a likeable Polanski film as well. I have to agree, Matt, although Scott is a dissenting voice. I... I, I... <sighs> No, as I said, I, I, I don't find it unlikable. You know, I, I find nothing substantial about the film to, you know, to, to react to either positively or negatively. It, it, it is it's cinematic porridge. <laughs> but I'd eat that porridge any day rather than watch Repulsion again. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. Uh, and Malefique, that was good fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yes, and, and an overlooked minor classic, I think. Yeah. And tonally, yeah, um, a Malefique, proper horror film, Ninth Gate. TD much, shit. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> much kind of lighter entertainment, but still, you know, engaging and with kind of occult trappings. Trappings, yeah. yeah. The, the lesson I got from Malefique never end up in a French prison, especially an old one. With those words of wisdom, that wraps us up for another fortnight. So it's goodbye from me. Cheerio from me. And farewell from me. Hello. Blasphemous Tomes.com. Mm-hmm.